we've been tracking people's concern about the future and fear of the future for the last decade. And actually, I mean, it hasn't necessarily got worse uh, in the sense of general. People are always saying the world's dangerous. It's so, it was 78% long before COVID-19 came out. So, I mean, it all gone up a bit, but we generally, human beings, the reason we've managed to conquer the planet is because we are programmed to look for bad news and then or bad things and then do something about it. Uh, and if, it, if it's just litter, in good times, it's cracked, it's cracked pavements and litter on the sidewalk. Uh, in bad times, it's rather more severe, but the response in a way is the same. So we're always pessimistic about the future as a whole. We have a tendency uh, to it. And I think it's interesting how actually people adapt to new circumstances broadly, uh, you know, remarkably well. Now, we are in the very early days, and we'll see what suicide rate, if you do suicide rates after being locked, you know, effectively confined in your home, go up. Real People is produced by Square Holes, an agency conducting and publishing customized explorative research on key consumer markets, customers, and population segments. Square Holes also provides associated consulting and support to ignite positive business and social behavior change. Visit squareholes.com for more. Radio, hello there. My name is Jason Dunstone and welcome to Real People, where we interview average and not-so-average people, academics, researchers and leading thinkers to help us better understand what real people believe and how they behave. Today we're joined by Ben Page, the Chief Executive of Ipsos Mori UK and Ireland, a role he has had since 2009 a frequent writer and speaker on trends, leadership and performance management. Ben has directed thousands of studies examining consumer trends and citizen behaviour. Since 1992, Ben has worked closely with both Conservative and Labor ministers and senior policymakers across government. A graduate of the University of Oxford, Ben is visiting professor at King's College London and a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences. Ben shares his observations of the dramatic changes from COVID-19 and discusses what the data is showing, how trust in government builds in such times and emerging local and global trends from brands to climate change. Uh, let's not waste a moment. On with the show. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning... Thank you so much for joining us today, Ben. Question that we start all of these with, what were you like as a child? What were you like when you were eight? Mm, I was probably quite, well, at eight, it was a difficult time. My mum uh, ran off with a blacksmith, so I was I was uh, brought up in a sort of academic family. And um, at the age of seven, my mother um, decided that she was fed up with my uh, professor father and wanted something else. So she got the whole, she got me and my brother and we went to live uh, about 30 miles away in, in the middle of nowhere by British standards, at least. Uh, and um, yeah, there was no, there was no, it was just sort of electricity. The water was from a pump in the garden and uh, it was, this was 1972. There we go. And 1972 was probably like 1968 in Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco. <laughs> so, uh, so she was doing her thing and having a great time. It was a very sort of passionate relationship she had with a blacksmith. And but it, there was a lot of sort of violence, and she used to do things like put her hand through the window and stuff like this. And oh, sort of, there and we she go. Was so angry, really... it's all sorts of stuff. So um, I was probably sort of quite, 
I was just doing my own thing. We used to just go off for long walks. and the, I used to go and sort of play with my brother in the countryside and read a lot of books uh, from about five o'clock in the morning. And that went on through most of my um, childhood. And it turned out to be quite good to be, you know, it made you quite academic. But yeah, that was what, that's what I was like when I was eight. Yeah, yeah. Um, as, as your child informed your adult? Um, well, not not necessarily. I mean, I'm trying. I'm trying to. I I think it's interesting, isn't it? I don't. I never really. I know it's an interesting question. I guess you become quite. Um, I think if you go through. I mean, at the time, it, I think the thing about childhoods is they're all crazy and wrong mm. in different ways. And you know, adults. You know, what did Philip Larkin say? He said that you know your parents fucked you up. But um, I guess it makes you felt quite self-contained, possibly. Mm. Um, and uh, that can be good and bad, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's, what's the... Know, it's, um, Sorry? I also did a lot of magic shows when I was a child. So I got oh, an early... Yeah. When I was nine, I started doing magic shows. I was in the magic circle in Britain in the 1970s. I was on television in 1976 doing okay. magic tricks. And okay. um, I think that got me used to standing up on a stage and all this sort of stuff, uh, which I spend quite a lot of time doing professionally. And sitting down, reading books, trying to work out what they say, I, that ended up with a history degree, which, again, people might say, well, history, you know, utterly irrelevant. But, of course, those who don't understand the past are destined to repeat it. Hmm. Um, and uh, the one thing about history degree and market research is that you end up, in certainly in the way it was done at, at my university, where you basically were given a list of about 30 books and told to come back in a week with a, you know, a 3,000-word essay or something. Uh, was you had to you had to work out what you were going to look at, what you were going to read, what you were going to synthesize, and then work out what the narrative was, which mm-hmm. is useful in our job because you know there's, there's always too much data, or you've got impartial data, you know imperfect data, data missing. So you have to be, and and people you have too little time for you to tell them all the data. So you have to work out what it all means. So I don't know. That's my that's my sort of uh, potted childhood. There you go. There we go. That's good. Thank you so much, Ben. What's the weirdest thing you've seen in the last week? There's lots of things going on, and obviously you're... you're oh, I think, no, I mean, the, the weirdest thing, the most shocking thing is both in Britain and the United States is the um, the rapid increase in unemployment. I don't know if you've seen the chart of jobless counts That's in right, the United States, but it sort of go, it drifts down for the last three years or something, or ten years even, and then suddenly spikes to a level that, you know, hasn't been seen, but I don't know, it doesn't fit on the scale. It must be either the Great Depression or the 1970s or something. So that's uh, that's that's the most shocking thing I've seen. I mean, I'm sure there are something else as well, but yeah. How are you digesting all of this? Is it like obviously the the horror of it all occurring? And um, listen to your your talk. I think it was last night, uh, referring to sort of the more dramatic changes to not not since sort of World War Two kind of uh, comparisons. But yeah, as a researcher, sort of uh, student of history, well, I think I mean I'm. Not- we're, I mean, we are obviously, we started tracking it, um, I think, in February. Uh, so we, you know, we've seen it coming. I think it, it gets, uh, as they say, shit gets real when you start having to work out, when, when clients ring up and say, you know that £10 million job you're doing, well, you're not doing it anymore. And you know there's dozens of people whose livelihoods depend on doing it. Um, so we're going through that process. I mean, it's basically like 2008, but at high speed. Where, mm. So we... You know, you sort of saw 2008 coming and then you see it gradually unraveling. And it took actually, I was just looking back at our numbers. I mean, we we shrank for about three years after 2008. It didn't all happen at once. So one's, one's sort of hoping that this is going to be a big hit. 
and then uh, things will sort of level out and we'll know where we are. But, uh, you know, who knows? Mm-hmm. So no, my, my issue at the moment is running the, is running the business and obviously in a large business, preserving cash, making sure you have enough cash for the payroll, which we do, fortunately, but then working out how you're going to weather the storm. And that involves judgments about how long the storm might be as well. Mm-hmm. It is so sudden, isn't it? I know in Australia, I wrote something at the end of February talking about our economy and are our businesses prepared for the future. And then because COVID-19 hadn't really hit us, it was in Italy and obviously China and and that was where the wave was starting to occur. And then really in the last three weeks here, it sort of really, really smashed down. And, and I'm, I'm assuming UK has been rather similar in the last four weeks in particular. So how, how do yeah, you know, we've been something lot, so rapid? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I mean, you just, you know, you, I mean, people are actually much more adaptable than you might think. So we've got everybody, we've managed to get 1,500 people working at home. Not all, some of them didn't have home computers, uh, you know, they were just doing uh, office-based jobs and had office computers only or even were doing physical jobs. And we've managed to get everybody working at home pretty much. I mean, I think print, the printers we might have an issue with because uh, they can't really move their printing machines. I'm not sure how much demand there is for print at the moment, but um, it will come back. So, we're no, we're juggling through it, but it is, uh, yeah, it's just the speed of the shock. And I think people go through the sort of it's a bit like losing your job or anything like that. Stages of grief, you know, there's a sort of, first of all, there's disbelief and then there's sort of unhappiness and then we, and then there's gradually acceptance later on. Mm. I'm not quite sure where we are on the curve at the moment. Uh, mm. We'll see. I mean, I must admit, getting into, I'm sort of getting into the, I don't know about you, if you're in lockdown, I assume you are, yes, but we are. we're sort of getting used to being at home and, uh, and I'm much luckier because my son's 25. I'm not trying to manage three children at home with closed schools. And trying to do my job, which would I think make it much much more difficult. Mm-hmm. And, and your sense from the research that the world's accepting the lockdown and the, the change of uh, behaviour and, and performance. Yeah, I mean, what's what? Yes, what you've seen is uh, in, in certainly in all the countries I've looked at is a rise in satisfaction with and confidence in the government, which is something we always see at times of crisis. So Boris Johnson started his time in office last year as our prime minister uh, with quite bad ratings by historic standards. And he's now as high as Maggie Thatcher was during the Falklands War. I think Mrs. Merkel in Germany now has 79% satisfied. And anybody who looks at uh, political polling will know that this is just sort of pretty much astonishing. Mm-hmm. And it's, it is this thing that we see, the same for Conte in Italy, Macron in uh, France, have all seen massive lifts. Even the Aussies, I would imagine, might, you might start to see your prime minister, um, uh, you know, pursuits and, and ratings go up. Yeah, I'm assuming you're getting criticism of politicians on social media in the UK. Are you? Is that? I'm assuming. That's of course, no. Well, well, there's, yeah, there's people complaining. I mean, there's complaints about the lack of preparedness, the lack of um, testing in the UK, and there's complaints about the lack of protective equipment in hospitals. But uh, nevertheless, um, you know, people can see that the government has acted quite dramatically. They're mostly staying at home. We've stopped panic buying now. We've sort of got over that first phase, which was the same as in China. I saw in, I saw in uh, Australia as well, everybody became obsessed about Lou Roll. That's right. But once people realise the supply chains are working, they sort of calm down. That's the lesson from China. And I think even, even here, within reason. And then, you know, but they also, people look for the government and they look for leadership at, at times of crisis. So even though it doesn't necessarily last after the crisis, I mean, Churchill 
in World War II was very, very popular. But as soon as there was an election at the end of World War II, it got booted out by the okay. electorate and they preferred they preferred somebody else, uh, Clement Attlee, to run the economy in a, in a, in a perhaps a very different way than Churchill would have done. So it's a, it's a, it's a crisis effect, but we've certainly... That is one of the most, along with the, you know, the sharp rise in people who are worried about their livelihoods and making ends meet. The biggest shift has been this, which is pretty predictable in a way, the shift in confidence in the government to do the right thing, etc. Mm. But in recent years... And, uh, sorry, no, you go. Go on. In no, recent on. years, there's been declining trust in, in governments around the world or political leaders, as I understand it, so... Some of the stats we'll look at is well. It's well. It's that's complicated. Actually, there's a there's a report on our website called Trust the Truth hmm. uh, because we got fed up with the lazy meme of journalists saying that, and, and to a certain extent, my friends at Edelman's PR who put out every year for the folks at Davos that uh, trust is in terminal decline, uh, nobody trusts anybody anymore, etc. Actually, if you read our report, we looked at all of the time series data we could find for every continent on Earth going back to the 1950s. And, for example, if you believe, look at trust in government or trust in other people in the United States. Now, you know, clearly there is a lot of polarisation. There is real polarisation in the United States. But actually, between 2011 and 2019, which is the last place I could get data, um, there was actually no decline at all in trust in America. Okay. Um, but what, what there had, has been, and it's the same in Britain, trust in civil servants long before this crisis was the highest it's ever been. It's gone up about 40 percentage points since 1983. Trust in scientists has never been higher. Um, obviously, politicians aren't trusted, but then they never have been. Mm. So the, the figures for trust in politicians are sort of low, but similar to what they were when we first asked the question back in 1983. So there is a long-term crisis of trust in Western democracies, but it isn't new and it isn't acute. And I think one of the, cha- one of the interesting things here is the tendency of all human beings, you and me included, to spot to spot things and then create a pattern. So we we think, oh well, people have elected these you know these anti politicians, these populists, and this must be because they're so fed up with all politicians and trust. As I've heard in the media, trust is at an all time low. But when you dig into it, it turns out to be a bit more complicated. So North America has the longest time series, and what it shows is that the high point of trust in government was under Eisenhower in 1958. But, of course, you and I might not want to live in Eisenhower's America of 1958, where you've got racial segregation, mm-hmm. uh, the real threat of nuclear annihilation at any moment. And, you know, America, te- teachers doing duck and cover for the bomb landing. And you sort of, an alert, a generation who've had to live through World War II and therefore know that you must respect authority, etc. So it, it declined in the 1970s after Watergate and Vietnam. And then there's been subsequent declines. But it hasn't got worse recently. It's just lower and I think the, the debate we need to have on trust, I, I'm afraid you got me on a hobby horse, right. is um, really, for, for most of the clients that we have, the issue is not actually trust, which is blown around by all sorts of things and is very hard to influence, but is actually just basic competence. Mm. If you're brilliantly competent, you don't need to worry too much about trust because you'll build trust unless you're a sort of evil, um, you know, I mean, there are some banks that are very competent, but also will, you know, are perceived at least to rip you off with any opportunity they get. And they, they do have an issue in terms of their of empathy and sharing values. But for, for many organizations, it's merely about just just being comp- just be just be really, really competent, um, show you have good intentions, be transparent. Don't worry about trust. My clients who um, pay me to measure how trusted they are and use it as a key metric, I, I keep telling them, um, you know, it's it's okay to look at it from time to time, but the, the newspapers can do more on this, or a bit of social media can do more on this 
whatever you're doing, you know, and, and your numbers can be blown around all over the place. Mm-hmm. So focus on competence. Yeah. So co- competence and performance builds trust. Yeah, that, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and it, I mean, it's funny, actually, you know, where we sort of say, you know, look at everybody, you know, Apple, you know, for a long time was sort of the, you know, the, the blue eyed boy of tech and Microsoft was the big evil monster. But actually, if you look at what Bill Gates has done in terms of spending his money on dealing with AIDS and um, malaria, etc., in, in Africa and the developing world, and I don't think Steve Jobs spent quite as much of his money on this type of thing, but it didn't seem to, you know, it didn't matter because actually Apple's products were just so lovely. You know, all the protesters on, uh, uh, on an Extinction Rebellion or the um, protests outside the stock exchange, you know, 10 years ago or whatever, they're all carrying the products of these people. So it's a... It's complicated. Hmm. Are you getting a sense that whether it's political or brands, that there's a shared vision or communities view that there's a shared vision for brands and, and political leaders to just get through this uh, r- rather than say well, bipartisan think, yeah. pol- like, politics being more bipartisan, pol- the pol- politics being taken out of politics, businesses aren't necessarily only focused on growth. They're, they're, they're trying to just solve COVID-19. Is there a sense from a consumer community side that, that that's, that's occurring or? I think, I mean, I think you can, I mean, I don't, I don't think I've got data to prove, prove or disprove that. But what I would say is there are signs, um, first of all, that in times of crisis, when we come to brands, people, people return to the brands that they know and love. So you can see General Mills pumping money into uh, marketing because it knows that again from history that people are likely to go back to the brands that they had as children um you know at, at this sort of time when rather than trying something new and wacky they want something that's reassuring mm. i mean nostalgia has been a major trend in the west for for over a decade but again you know type the pre you know the sort of pre-crisis blah 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 so i think there's a sign that big trusted brands might actually prosper in this sort of setting I think brands with purpose, um, you know, which we've all talked about and whether or not purpose is the be all and end all. And uh, it's a it's a moot point. But uh, because ultimately, again, people, you know, money talks, people often say they want to do the right thing. But ultimately, they buy the thing that sort of they can they can best afford, etc. Um, yet, I think I, I think purpose matters. And I think in, in theory, you know, if you it, it's difficult. I mean, I've, I've been asked this by journalists, really, will brands that behave badly during the crisis suffer afterwards? And I think, unfortunately, actually, the evidence is there's rather, people have rather mixed memories. So if you take Volkswagen with the emissions crisis, there was a short-term dip, but then actually they afterwards, they zoomed back. There's a guy here called Mike Ashley who runs a chain of um, uh, sports clothing shops and has uh, he gets constantly hauled over the coals to bad labor practices, as indeed has Amazon from time to time. And yet both he and, and he's also got a particular load of flack over some of the things he did uh, in the early days of the crisis here. But actually, I think ultimately everybody buys, most people buy things from Amazon, even though they know about that it might not mm. be an absolute bed of roses working in an Amazon workshop. And I think Mike Ashley's very cheaply priced sports clothing will probably still sell after the crisis. So as, as indeed our Volkswagen after they've been very naughty on emissions testing. So I think, uh, you know, purpose, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm in business and we do purpose and it's the world is completely different than it was when I started work in the 1980s in terms of the amount of free time we give people, paid time to go and do voluntary work, the amount we raise for charity, you know, what we do on diversity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that's just the, the, the general atmosphere. The world is different than it was when I, when I started work in the 1980s. So 
you know, business reflects society, politics reflects society. So I think the trusted brands will probably do okay. It, it, it's no harm to be seen to be making, turning your, um, if you're LVMH or whoever, it's no harm to be seen to be making sanitizer now. But ultimately, I think it, I'm not sure how long lasting that, that really is ultimately. Mm. How should business leaders be responding at the moment? How should brands be responding? It, it well, the main be... thing is just clarity about what you're doing. So people want to know in the same way that they want leadership from politicians. Uh, as an employer, people want to know what you're going to do. They want clear, transparent, regular communications about what's happening. They want whatever you do in response to the crisis to be seen as fair um, if you're a if you're a business like an airline, I mean they're in absolute turmoil. You know, some and some more clarity about when or how you're going to get your money back. I mean, is is pretty. I'm sure, like me, you've probably got lots of flights that you had booked mm-hmm. for this year. And when you try and ring up to find out what how you're going to get it back, it's like you know two hours on the phone if you're lucky, and then and then you get cut off at the end. So some very clear, just very clear communications about these are the ground rules we're following, etc. And their response has probably not been ideal. But then in terms of shock and awe of who's seeing money just disappear, uh, they must be, um, it must be pretty, you know, running a market research business is one thing. Running an airline or a hotel oh, group know, where your revenue just disappears overnight, uh, it must be pretty, uh, pretty shocking. Yeah, and, and it seems like a time to be, the need to be sensitive to your customers, to your to your um, to your clients. It's it's a it's a delicate one, really, isn't it? Because yeah. a, lo- a lot of I know we've got yeah. um, organisations we deal with that are they're going through staff pulling their pay back or, or reducing staff numbers, or they're just not sure how they're going to make the numbers work. So you kind of really it's that delicate yeah. line, isn't it? Really, it's not a it's not a time for hard sell. No, yeah. I mean I think people. Trying to be help if you're in business, trying to be helpful for your clients or whoever they are, whether they're the general public. And you've seen supermarkets doing these, you know, uh, longer shopping hours for older people or opening for the first hour and only people over 70 allowed in and all this type of stuff. This is all good stuff. And, in, and, and it's interesting, actually, the supermarkets in business, partly because of the sort of speed of turnover and the responsiveness in terms of how they're run, they, they are the most trusted even before the crisis, they were among the most trusted businesses globally. And in the last crisis, they did. They were generally seen as better than governments at acting in the 2008 recession because they were doing all these um, deals, you know, eat a meal with wine for £10, you know, we know you're live well for less, mm-hmm. every little helps. These are strap lines of our, of our supermarket chains in Britain. And I think, I'm sure there's been similar things all over the world. And that, which is interesting, because again, you're, you're you're showing empathy. You're providing, you know, you're, you're you're responding to the to the pressures that your customers are thinking. I mean, we're doing work free of charge for the National Health Service on what the staff are thinking at the moment for them, um, which is obviously a, a key issue with 1.3 million employees in the in the National Health Service here. Yeah, it's fair to say that consistently across the world. The general population is living in a level of fear. Yeah, I mean, I, although it's interesting on that because people, we've been tracking people's concern about the future and fear of the future for the last decade, and actually, I mean, it, it hasn't necessarily got worse uh, in the sense of general. People are always saying the world's dangerous. It's so it was seventy eight percent long before COVID nineteen came out. So, I mean, it all gone up a bit, but we generally, human beings, the reason we've managed to conquer the planet is because we 
are programmed to look for bad news and then or bad things and then do something about it. Uh, and if it, if it's just litter in good times, it's cracked it's cracked pavements and litter on the mm-hmm. sidewalk. Uh, in bad times, it's rather more severe. But the response, in a way, is the same. So we're always pessimistic about the future as a whole. We have a tendency uh, to it, and I think it's interesting how actually people adapt to new circumstances broadly. Uh, you know, remarkably well. Now we are in the very early days, and we'll see what suicide rate if do suicide rates after being mm-hmm. locked, you know, effectively confined in your home go up um, markedly. Does, I mean, there are some evidence that in France, um, domestic abuse cases in Paris, I think there have been up, up by 56% or something. So you can, sit, but you can sort of see that. But I'm, you know, I'm, I, I, I don't know if people's fundamental frameworks will change, actually. I mean, I, we've tracked some things back to the last century, and we can see that people are always worried about the future. Yeah. I mean, admittedly, at the moment, they're, they're worried about paying the bills, literally, you know, month to month. Uh, in fact, interestingly, the economic impact, which I guess is appropriate given that we've just closed down large sections of the economy, people are more concerned about the economic impact than they are about the personal health impacts. And of course, you know, most people aren't going to die of COVID-19. But most people are going to see some sort of financial hit, either immediately or, or in terms of increased taxation at some point, unless we're into some new paradigm where somehow governments are able to print money and there's never any inflation and mm-hmm. uh, it just all sort of works. But we'll see. And, it, and it, I, I'm assuming that, that, that this is most people or pretty well everybody hasn't seen something like this before. So it's it's hard to get their minds around. But you're saying that they're generally quite adaptive, is that so people will... Well, I think people, people, are, people, sort of, people will muck in and make do uh, when they, you know, as they can. Of course, nobody's, people haven't lived confined to their homes uh, like this for, I don't know, forever. I mean, even in World War II in Britain, the pubs were open, <laughs> uh, which, they're, which they're not now. It's in, it's actually, I don't know about it in Australia, but I've been uh, driving around. I noticed that all the pubs have got sort of, a lot of the pubs have got sort of um, actual wood over their windows because they're obviously expecting a sort of rioting at some point where people are going to try and get in mm. um we haven't gone that so far I don't yet, know. we no. don't know we, we don't we don't know we don't know how it's how people how it will play out and i think those of us who've been in business for a long time have obviously lived through the 2008 crisis and having to in our industry which was more or less in growth um pretty much consistently from the 1960s onwards so certainly in my career uh, and then, uh, then in 2008, of course, it goes into reverse, and that was, you know, that was pretty marked. Uh, and this time, it's a much more, in theory, it's a, it's a, it's a known, in a way, it's a known quantity uh, potentially. I mean, I think there is the Spanish flu trajectory is worth looking at if you haven't, because of mm-hmm. course, the second peak was worse than the first peak, but okay. that was without any con- any containment. Um, so, yeah, we just don't know quite how it plays out, but it must be that a vaccine is available by, you know, June next year. Uh, and, you know, life must sort of return to normal sometime next year, if, if not before. That means you can, you can sort of plan it in a way that, whereas if you thought it's, a, you know, it's a slump for a decade, like the 1930s, it's a very different reaction that you might take. Hmm. Are you seeing any notable geographical demographic differences say i understand young people are are, are are sensing they're more impacted um like yeah well the young people of course are the ones who are most likely to have children in the household or young children in the household so 
Yes, they're, and they're also on relatively, I, I don't know if it's the same in Australia, but in Britain, what we've done since 2010 is tend to protect or even enhance pensioners' incomes. And uh, the, the working age population has seen relatively little in the way of real pay rises after inflation is taken into account. In fact, we only just got back to sort of 2008 levels of income uh, after after inflation, etc., was, was taken into account just a few, you know, last year sometime. So, the, and the young have been squeezed, and they're finding it. They report in our surveys that they're finding it more difficult. The place with the most young people, relatively speaking, is London, which is also a Labour voting city. So, London is more negative, and young people are more negative about the government's handling. But, of course, attitudes to the government's handling of the crisis are polarised along party political lines. So if you're a Conservative voter, uh, you can do, you know, the government can do no wrong, and if you're, well, broadly, and if you're a Labour voter, of course, you're much, much more critical. So there, so there is that. But overall, you know, you've got, you know, 50, 50% plus happy uh, with uh, Boris Johnson, mm. and you've, you've got... Um, you know, seven out of 10 people are happy with, you know, pleased about what the National Health Service is doing. And that, as you know, I'm sure the NHS is the closest thing Britain has to religion. So, yeah, yeah. so it's now, it's now going to, it's now going to prove itself. And there's lots of, you know, we have clapping like every Thursday night at eight o'clock, uh, outside our homes and banging pots, pots and pans in a sort of slightly un-British way to thank everybody working in the National Health Service. And you see that all over social media. Yeah. Wow. And geographic? Do you see many geographic differences? Um, well, London, as I say, London is a bit more negative. Um, Scotland and Wales have slightly fewer cases. It's not. It's nothing. I don't think there's anything sort of absolutely leaping out in flashing lights. Quite frankly, I mean, yeah. we're a small island as well. Remember? Yeah. What about outside of the UK? What, what sort of stats are you seeing outside of the UK? Well, I mean, I, you know, uh, it's, uh, the patterns are broadly are broadly similar. So, uh, you know, Italy is obviously the, has, is ahead of the curve in Europe and has been by far the hardest hit in terms of people's feeling about pers- personal risk and also, uh, you know, the, the financial hit. I mean, I think something like 53% in Britain are worried about losing their jobs. In Italy, it's 65%. Mm. Uh, and if you've been to southern Italy, I mean, the, the real issue there is what happens when it arrives in Naples, if you've ever been to Naples in southern Italy, which is some of the lowest life expectancy in Italy long before COVID-19. I mean, yeah, literally okay. families living yeah. in a room that opens onto the street. What is going, you know, how do they, how do you keep five people in this room that has a bed, a fridge um, and a cooker, mm-hmm. and a TV? And that's, mm-hmm. that's literally how they live. And then they're going to be asked to stay indoors for, you know, X. Well, we'll, we'll see how that, how it, how it goes, if it breaks out there. But overall, no, there isn't, I mean, the main, the, one of the interesting things was the proportion of people who thought it was fake news. So, in the early days of the crisis, the Italians were uh, were likely to think it was fake news and it was being exaggerated. And that, of course, has now sharply fallen. Uh, and that was pretty interesting. And actually, indeed, in Britain, the same thing's happened. We've still got about, even though we're in lockdown in Britain, I think there's still 30, 30% plus who think that it's all exaggerated. And there is an interesting difference between leave and remain voters where... Uh, 59% of uh, Remain voters say they're staying at home all the time, and the Leave voters, it's 47%, yeah. uh, which is interesting. Maybe they're just anti-authority or something. Yeah, okay. And the, and the US seem to be a bit more apathetic about it, is that? Yeah, I mean, again, it's early days in the United States. I mean, I think every what seems to be the case is that most countries seem to follow a similar trajectory. I mean, America, you know, yes, New York's in lockdown, 
uh, other parts of America haven't even gone into lockdown yet. And so you're going to, you know, you'll see because of the, again, the devolved nature of the states, it's going to be a different, you know, a different pattern. The sad thing is that it may well be that America will eventually, everything will be like Italy. And that is um, uh, pretty, uh, pretty dramatic. I mean, the, one interesting thing in all of this, in, in a sense, is whether we see now uh, a permanent, this is the sort of final death knell for neoliberalism, because, you know, we've now had to have, we've got a government in Britain that is um, taken over the operation of the railways, which was a labor policy. It's basically paying basic income to a large number of people, which again was not, even Labour didn't propose a basic income, although they might have liked to do. And now the Conservative government is doing all these things. And, you know, after World War II in Britain, uh, and indeed in many European countries, and probably Australia, you saw uh, um, having all been in it together and everybody mixed up together in the army and in shelters and in factories, you saw a, a much more activist government taking over industries, providing housing, building health and social security systems. And it may be that uh, after this, people say, yeah, the government, you know, that scheme you did where you guaranteed everybody two and a half thousand a month if they were, uh, you know, if, if they were on average wages before and to stop them being unemployed. That's a really good scheme. You know, you should keep that. <laughs> uh, how we pay for it is a, is a moot point. But that, you know, we may see a much more activist government because even before the COVID-19 crisis, we had seen a rise in many countries in the proportion wanting to be a bit more like Denmark and a bit less like the United States. Uh, in Britain, it had gone from about 45% to 57%, wanting a government that end, you know, emphasised uh, social and economic equality rather than um, everybody looking after themselves. And that's been quite a mark, that's a marked shift. So I think this just, this just puts it on steroids. We were already lining up to spend more money on public services during uh, the 2020s. And now, well, now we are. Uh, you know, the NHS will have all the money it ever wanted. Yeah, okay. So is this a line in the sand? That well, we don't know. I think it depends how long the crisis is. I mean, we could, you know, nobody knows what the future holds. And anybody who says they do needs to be given a few pills and sent to lie down for a few hours. But I think it's, it, it suggests, I mean, certainly in absolute raw economic terms, the government is... Uh, in Britain, the, the spend is at least 330 billion as a bare minimum extra, which is phenomenal. You know, it's, it's, it's roughly 10. I mean, the state has basically increased by about 10 percent, very crudely, I think, mm. across Europe. And that's a, that's a significant change, particularly in some of the European countries where in France it was already at about 55 percent of GDP. So if, it, if they add another 10 percent on top, you know, you've got a very different sort of economy. So we'll see, uh, but it, you know, in de facto, the spend at the moment is that high, and how they unreal that without causing mass destitution and you know real populist revolt is going to be really interesting. Uh, what are you seeing? Some of the trends that are likely to stick, Ben? Well, I think. I mean, I think that's one of the ones. The other one is, of course, around just given the disruption that all of us office-based workers are experiencing is is a question about you know if it goes on. Some people, not everybody, will like working at home. Not everybody, but a lot of people will have discovered that actually they can get quite a lot of work done. They quite like it. So it means that, you know, when I'm looking at my crowded office space at £55 a foot, uh, well, first of all, the price of that office space may go down if, uh, there's a, if everybody thinks the same way. But I might decide I don't need to expand it anymore. In fact, I can make do with a lot less office space because so many people will actually prefer to work at home, where they, particularly in cities where you've got a long commute. 
in London, you know, we've got lots of people commuting for an hour or even two hours to get to an office. If, it, if they found out that they quite enjoy having those three hours a day back and they can just get some work done in their spare room, it won't work for everybody. It won't work for young people where four people are sharing one kitchen and that's how they live. But I can see a world where, you know, work is much more decentralized, uh, uh, probably much, you know, you've got much, much more flexible. This is a real sort of test of the technology. Fortunately, it did seem to hit at just the point where at least the technology broadly works, given that we're talking to each other thousands and thousands mm. of miles apart, as mm. though we were in the same, you know, just in neighboring rooms or something. Uh, so we'll we'll see. Um, I think that's certainly one of the disruptions. Um, obviously, we've talked about trusted brands. Uh, we, you know, we, we will see... There may be uh, some effects on community because you've got now all these neighborhood groups of WhatsApp, etc. You've got various forms of grassroots activism, bringing, bringing things to people. We'll see how that hangs together. But there's certainly signs of that. I mean, I'm talking to my neighbors who I don't normally speak to because they're completely housebound and can't get any food because the ordering services are completely full. They're in their 70s, quite well off, but they, they literally had no fresh food at all until I... Um, uh, asked them the other day and I was just like oh my god man I'm, I'll, I'll, I can walk to the shop for you you know that's okay but they're worried about going out in case they get infected uh, so you know who knows I mean the, there, are, there are sort of all sorts of little community groups being set up and some of that neighbourliness will probably stick around for a while mm-hmm. longer term though I think it is the state action uh, it's and it may be that we just we, we I mean the, at the macro level of course if it turns out that the disease is endemic and uh, we, you know, the vaccine doesn't quite work, uh, or or something like that. Then there is an interesting question about whether globe. This is peak globalization. Yeah, uh, at this point you know, in we'll time, still be, yeah, we're, we're, and, and globalization. We sort of row back. We notice that it's not much good having a supply chain where stuff takes four weeks, six weeks to get to you, and you can't change it in time. And you need to you need to manufacture more things locally. You, you know, possibly, uh, we, we will see, you know, you see, you see a slightly more, um, uh, you know, I suppose, shorter supply chains, more, more local stuff, slightly different appraising of priorities. But on the other hand, you might also see more multilateralism, which would be good, that people realise that countries need to pull together. I mean, there is a lot of international collaboration over things like the vaccine. And, you know, so despite the, the politics of China trying to say that, you know, recast itself instead of the instead of the source of infection it's now the global leader in how to deal with covid19 and flying help to europe etc uh will you know and this and the trump the trump z uh sort of rivalry or the putin trump z european union rivalry will we you know will that will we see a bit more you know if if, if i mean we just don't know how the disease progresses in somewhere like africa are we going to see an absolute humanitarian crisis in some of the in the countries of the south, you know, in in Asia, in South Asia, in India, in Africa. We just don't know how that will progress. Uh, if you know, how do you? you they just tried to lock down Lagos. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you lock down Lagos with people living in shacks? I I have no. Where are they going to? Where you know? It just the mind boggles. The mind boggles. So we don't know exactly. I mean, we're only. This is the difficulty. We are only in the foothills of this disease asia north asia is coming out of it slowly we don't know if we should trust the chinese data or not because you see on social media sort of huge numbers of urns for cremated remains being sent to the center of the infection and you don't know if that's for the people who died in the past or the people who are actually still dying 
but you know that that's those are the unknowns, I guess. But that would be my. It's a long answer to a short question. Yeah. What, what about things like climate change? There sort of seem to be trends towards climate change over the last. Yeah. I mean, well, years. I think that's a good one. I think. I mean, the trend obviously is of you know massive falls in uh, pollution across the Western world, etc., and indeed in China. The, the the challenge on that is 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 twofold in a sense. First of all, most of the evidence is from the 2008 crash is that that all went down, but then actually shot up again on the rebound. So that's something. So will we see a, a different, you know, a different profile this time? There is greater global concern about climate change and carbon than there was in 2008. Um, we have seen some signs uh, that, you know, the move to home working might also be seen as a positive in terms of less commuting, less pollution, etc., Will we see less air travel? Because that, of course, typically just tracks GDP and was on course to double between 2017 and 2034, which is pretty uh, phenomenal as, as the developing world takes to the air for the first time. We just don't, I think we just don't know. I mean, there's been bits on social media of the Gen Zs born before, born after 1995, who are sort of slagging off boomers like me and looking at your um, photo, possibly you. Uh, where, <laughs> uh, because of course we, we polluted the planet and we didn't care about that, but now we care about COVID-19, which is going to kill more of us than it is of them. Uh, so there's been a little bit of that, but no, I don't know. But that is one of the ideas, this, this point that we sort of have a, a collective taking stock, drawing of breath, and we look and say, well, what sort of world do we want after it? Unfortunately, I think that in real life, most of us will just be much more concerned about having enough money to pay our bills, pay our rent, pay our mortgages. Um, and we won't necessarily be you know, wanting to take part in a national conversation about shall we accept lower growth from this point on? We'll, we'll want to be the natural instinct will be wanting to get things back to being like they used mm. to be. So even once we come out of it, there's going to be time for us to to for growth. It'll be, it'll be several years, many, many years for us to, to build out of this. Yeah, well, it looks, it looks like that way to me. I mean, they start, some of, I think McKinsey, to start with, the McKinsey have been revising their forecasts. Some of their early forecasts were, you know, a sort of sharp dip for three months and then a sharp bounce back with a minimal impact on the global economy this year, which is obviously utterly, they've now changed their minds. <laughs> that was a fantastically, oh, classic, classic human optimism bias, classically over-optimistic outlook. The difficulty is that because of the phasing of this, it, it will, you know, it looks like it's going to rumble on all year. And uh, the, the, the science appears to say that until the vaccine, we've either achieved herd immunity or the vaccine arrives or both, that, um, you know, you will see continuing effects. So we may be allowed out and the pubs may reopen for a few months. But if the cases start to rise again, we'll find ourselves back in the situation that we are now, locked down. And that is that becomes much more disruptive Um for me, with thousands of interviewers who are paid, uh, who are currently furloughed, what do I do? Do I say you can now go back to work? And I think people won't get used to having strangers knocking on their doors for a little while and be comfortable with that until they know the risk is gone. So, you know, when do I start doing that again? In particular, if there's going to be another peak, that becomes just as one example. So do you want to get on a really crowded aeroplane to fly to, mm -hmm. you know, to fly to Brisbane mm -hmm. or whatever, to go to the Gold Coast? Well, you're going to be thinking about that until you know that the disease is basically eliminated. If you think there's still, if you know there's still some cases or whatever, or, you know, how would you feel about that? Yeah. Final question, Ben. Uh, what, what's your suggestion to young people moving forward? 
Well, at least they're the optimists. They always are, which is good. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think use the time, use the, you know, the same advice to anybody, really. Use the time constructively if you can. One of the interesting pieces of advice coming out of China is that the time in isolation actually goes much faster than you think it will. So if you've got those books that you're planning to read, the box set that you're planning to watch, or the ukulele you're planning to learn, uh, start today. I mean, that's always good advice. But <laughs> I think even in lockdown, start today, because it, well, the time is actually going to go faster than, you, faster than you can possibly imagine. I mean, there are billions of teenagers all over the world who are in their rooms staring at computer screens or laptops or iPhones. And of course, uh, life must be pretty normal, actually. You just get food, reg- food regularly, and then you go back to your room and stare at your phone. Uh, but in all seriousness, no, make use, try and use the time constructively. I mean, there's loads of people worried about their studies, but there is a lot more we can do. And I think that's a key point for actually all conditions. I think this applies to everybody in almost any situation. Uh, we, we have a lot more agency and ability to take to flex than we think. And how we react to this situation in a Buddhist sense, you know, the situation is the situation. Uh, accepting what you can control uh, is, is really important. And some of what you control is how you react to the situation. Hmm. And that, and be, I think, is something that we can all learn, however old we are. That's right. And being grateful for for what we um, maybe had before. Like, it seemed hard three, six months ago, but it, it was perhaps easier. <laughs> and can people find you in any way? What's the best way to find you, Ben? Uh, just email ben.page at ipsos.com or go on any go on Google or somewhere or LinkedIn. You'll find me plenty of plenty of ways to find me on there. Thank you so much for your time. Have a good day. No problem. 